last name? Pierno. Pierno. Okay. Yes, sir. All right, great. Uh, here we go. Welcome to the Top MA's uh, Entrepreneurs Podcast. I got uh, Andrew Pierno today. How you doing, Andrew? Doing all right, John. How are you? Yeah, good. So uh, you and I reached out because I saw you did a podcast with somebody else. Uh, but you're doing some micro acquires. You got a and then a company called XOXO Capital too. So uh, tell me about that. Where did this all start from? I mean, why did you just just like uh, I don't want to work for anybody else. I want to I want to do it myself. Uh, so I'll start midway through the past. 10 years or so. I worked at a venture studio for a number of years. I was their head of engineering. So venture studio is a little bit different than traditional venture capitals, right? So instead of just kind of investing, um, you are actively building. So like we may come up with an idea uh, and we may choose to build that and fund that ourselves, right? With the ultimate goal of spinning it out, raising outside capital and, and creating a proper company. It was supposed to be like a startup incubator type deal. Um, we got a couple million bucks to do three companies. And um, what ended up happening, and I, I, there, were, there were a ton of lessons learned and I draw a lot from what we're doing now and how we're thinking about setting things up from the venture studio. Cause I don't think we, I don't think we got it right. I mean, well, we definitely didn't get it right. Um, because what ended up happening is one of those companies uh, ended up being kind of the, the leader, right? Like in any, in any given portfolio, of companies, right? You have some winners and some losers, right? It's, it is it is kind of a, a power laws thing. Um, one of those companies, uh, you know, we ended up taking in a lot more investment. And at a certain point, those investors said, like, you guys got to stop messing around with the studio stuff and just go focus here. So I, I became CTO of that uh, company. It was it was we raised about eight million bucks. Um, we were on the full venture train, and uh, we we fell off at some point. And uh, well, we didn't we didn't hit our numbers to get a Series A, and we were just kind of we found ourselves in in no man's land. So, what happens when a venture company falls off the venture wagon? Well, they generally they die, and and it baffled me that we spent however many years, four or five, however many millions of dollars, eight, and uh, the 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 value reflected in the market for when we went to go do kind of an asset sale. Um, wasn't commensurate with the effort that we put into it or where the business was. And it occurred to me that, A, I could go out and acquire a company like this that somebody has invested $8 million into for a couple hundred grand or, I don't know, maybe a million bucks, skip the four or five years of the pain in the ass that was building that product and figuring out what you know how it should work, what it should do. Um, and so when that company spun down, that's when I, I put this group together to start kind of buying small SaaS companies, just pure software companies, um, and skipping that year or two or three or five of guesswork and just getting right to kind of growth, product improvements, um, and and potentially potentially scale. Yeah, I, I uh, just had a conversation earlier this week with a company that was growing at forty percent per month, and uh, they took two point four million dollars from VCs and. The way the industry was trending was, I mean, it was a hosting solution. So uh, Amazon and Microsoft are now its biggest competitors. And the VC uh, says, uh, we're out, we're done. Um, so he had to figure out how to get out of the investment. He he bought them out uh, and took a lot of debt on that. And it's still, 
a mildly profitable operation, but that's what happens. I mean, if they said, if it's not going to grow 40% more month, we're out. Yeah. Just to be clear, I, I am not anti-VC. I have a bunch of friends that are in VC, like really great people, super value added people. I just think the type of deal that is a, a venture deal is not what uh, the, the dogma coming out of Silicon Valley says that it is. So dogma coming out of Silicon Valley says for any ambitious uh, human on planet earth that wants to go start a company, thou shalt raise a fuck ton of money and thou shalt grow or die, right? Like that is kind of the ethos. And I actually think for a, a first time entrepreneur, the, the 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 goal should be cash flow, right? It should it should be like financial independence, um, and and you should try and and build a business uh, that is a proper business, right? It's not based on these kind of like crazy valuations. It just makes proper money, um, and don't get yourself in some of these sticky positions. So I you know venture is amazing for creating markets, but I think for most businesses they're not trying to create a new market, right? They're they are trying to just build a profitable software company and it may not be venture scale. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the, the um, again, like the, the, the kind of framing that's coming out of, of Silicon Valley or TechCrunch or all these companies, I think really pushes people into this scenario where they're trying to build a venture scale company. And frankly, the, the idea was never venture scale, right? And they would be perfectly happy with a $10 million a year business. Yeah. I mean, you look at MicroAcquire. I mean, it's got so many businesses. The only charge is three hundred dollars uh, per company to list on there, and all the companies that those are companies that will never get VC back. But it was, they think a lot of them think they are, but that's just not going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen for them. But from uh, and and just for for clarity, I know Andrew microacquire a little bit, they charge uh, us as buyers an annual subscription fee. So yes. they don't take any money on the transaction. So it's it's really kind of the Robin Hood of, of acquisition marketplaces, which is which is great. Um, I, it's not so much that the companies that we see are, are, you know, whether they're venture scale or not, to be honest with you, it's mostly younger. Uh, well, age age isn't really into it. It's, it's mostly entrepreneurs that just don't know how to build a proper business. So we have one deal right now under LOI that is um, two gentlemen midway through their careers, maybe three quarters of the way through their careers. They spotted an opportunity. They built something. But they have no intention of going full time on it. And, and they hit a scale. To, uh, they hit a point at which they saw that they themselves were hampering the business's growth. And so for us to go buy that and put some capital behind it and some, some more resources and dedicate some full time staff to it, that's going to be our alpha on that deal. The other kind of category of deal that we see is that uh, there's kind of two maybe first time entrepreneurs, generally software developers for the things that we're looking at, and they don't know what marketing is, right? They, they couldn't they couldn't sell me, you know, they couldn't sell me a million bucks if, if it was free or I don't know, there's some better analogy there, but like they're, they're not salespeople, right? They're just engineers and they, they hit a market. They got some traction in that market, but to say that they could scale it up 10x, uh, I think would be... Uh, false, like that they're probably not the right people to do it. Yeah, I agree with that. I've had a couple of conversations with sellers there. Like, you know, a software engineer goes, I don't know anything about marketing. I mean, I know how to build something. And if it's not taken off by himself, it's just not going to, uh, he, he's going to have to hand it to somebody else or bring somebody else on. Yeah. Yes. And those are the opportunities where we're looking for. We've, we've bought three, um, done pretty well with the, the first three so far. Yeah, so let's rewind now. The the VC company they uh, say, hey, look, we got to divest ourselves from this or shut it down, whatever the case was. 
And then you were CTO and you just said at some point, you know, I, I, I've got a different thesis. I want cash flow companies and I want companies that are already in orbit where I'm not, you know, working so hard to get them to orbit. Uh, where was that? I mean, how long did that take? And you figured that out and said, this is what I'm going to do. Well, I mean, it took up to, you know, last year for me to really kind of sink my teeth into the idea that going from zero to one sucks. It's really hard. I've done it twice. I've built like two, I currently have two six-figure businesses. One's just a straight services business, which is kind of interesting for me. The other is a software company. Um, and and it's really tough. It's really tough. There's a lot of luck involved, but for, for going from zero to one is, is hard. Going from three to 10, that's when you can start thinking about like a playbook. There's a lot more of a straightforward path and, and a well-worn trail for going from three to 10 than there is from going to zero to one. Zero to one is... Sometimes it's a lightning strike. Sometimes it's grits. It's 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 magic. Sometimes it's the owners, uh, founders pissing on each other's couch. It's just sure. a million ways to die in the West. Yeah, that's right. And and so yeah, out of frustration, really, I said, you know, why don't why don't I put a group together? We'll just do some with our own cash to start. Just see how this goes. This is the thesis that going from three to ten is is easier, at least more um, logical than going from zero to one. And so far, it's been right to the point where now we're, we're looking at doing deals where we're bringing in outside investors and trying to move up stack a little bit. Yeah. So the first company you bought, was that listed on MicroAcquire or was it somebody in another network? No. So we've only bought, so we bought uh, one on MicroAcquire and we sold yeah. that same one on MicroAcquire. So we did that one, the full MicroAcquire 360. The other two, we, uh, uh, we sourced. Uh, they were off market. Uh, that's been um, uh, an area of focus for us is to find off-market deals because, frankly, a lot of the valuations on um, on these these marketplaces are just uh, not based in reality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. 10x time sales, really, dude? You only got seventy thousand a year in income. Man. Yeah, but that is that is that's kind of what I'm talking about. So. If you, I mean, if you Google this right now, that's what like that's what Silicon Valley will tell you is that you can take, you should expect 10x top line ARR. That's your that's your company's valuation, and that's true for a strategic acquisition. Most yeah, it's price value. If you're a big company and you could tuck this in and get your IRR of your investment of uh, MOIC back in one month because you just plug in the technology to your channel, yeah, sure. Yes. I'll give you 10x. I, I'll give you 20x. Yes, exactly. 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 But for, for these other little businesses where it's not a strategic acquisition, we have to base it on cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. And you like, and you're starting off what the micro cap companies really small, like below a million, or where are you at? So we're just approaching a million now with these deals that we're doing on a deal by deal basis. That's where our target is currently. Uh, but the ones we did just with our own cash were, were below that. Yeah. And they were profitable or did you, or some are non-profitable? They were all profitable and we ran them all profitably. So whenever we did any kind of engineering work or marketing work, we took it out of the, um, the cash flow that came in from, from the yeah. current revenue. Did you use your cash to purchase it or any kind of creative financing? Like, you know, I'll put uh, 20%, 30% cash down. 30% seller financing, maybe some nothing. Some pure, pure cash. Pure cash. Yeah. Okay. Right. What's the price? Here's the wire. Yeah, that was it. Uh, 
Yeah. And and then you you're a marketing guy. Well, you're a CTO guy, but you have a marketing team and you take this like let's take the one that you bought from microacquire. You bought it and then you just put marketing to it or you put people process products to it or what what did you do to just turn around and so that one was cool because it was a, an XY Combinator company. Um, the real story for that is that we had a, a kind of falling out with one of our one of our partners, but um, that's kind of secondary. The, the, what we did when we bought it is, is A, we saw that it was underpriced, so we got it for a great deal. Um, B, when we got it, the technology had not been touched in about two years. So there were some really quick wins that we could do by just... Um, modernizing the, the the technology a little bit, uh, making it a little bit more robust, making the product a little bit more stable, right? So that we were not bleeding out uh, on our conversion rates, which is exactly what was happening. Uh, and these guys, and this is, this again, kind of is part of the reason we bought it is uh, their investors told them that this uh, product they had was not venture scale. So they either had to switch uh, products or, you know, their investors were out. Yeah. And so we took that business and we ran it profitably and, you know, patched it up, like put it in a, in a lot better position for somebody else to take it on and then um, ended up selling it to another group that's going to do just that. Did you, how, how was your IRR or your return on that? Did you three exit or five exit or? So for that one, I haven't, I'm generally like, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm super open with all these numbers, but this one, I just haven't asked the sellers yet if I can share it. So that one, I consider it was not, the win was in kind of knowledge gains about how we do diligence and all these things about how we kind of um, patch some of these things up, uh, but it was not necessarily a financial win. The other uh, two that I can talk more freely about just because we own them, we've 5X one uh, since we bought it in November. We've 3X another one since we bought it in mid-January. Yeah. Uh, so those numbers are, 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 the numbers are across the board are looking pretty good, but those two that we still have are, are looking pretty good. Yeah, so I have two questions in my mind. Uh, now, did you have to deal with any of the uh, venture capitalists that own part of it, or do they just say this guy can sell it on microcore? Uh, that's I, always the that's always the first guy. I got a partner that's does a lot of deals, and it's always like, hey, we took VC money, and the first question we ask is, where are the VCs at with that? Because they could, they're a stakeholder; they could veto it, anything. Yeah, the. <laughs> I think in, in absolute terms or well, in relative terms for these VCs, that dollar amount that it sold for just wasn't like, didn't matter to them. So they were like, great, you guys can go sell this. It was like, you, you know, selling shit at a garage sale. Basically you're like, Oh, I got a hundred bucks. Like sweet, yeah. extra hundred bucks. That's how they thought. That's how it felt like they were treating it. So it's already written off. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And these, uh, I, I'm really curious about, uh, you know, I had a, I worked on a startup called Hemp Exchange and they, um, they had, it was a marketplace and they had uh, 2 million in revenue in about nine months and then $650 million in merchandise. And the two owners, one was 60%, one was 40%. Well, it was less than that because I own five, but uh, they started pissing on each other couch and blew it up. I mean, how do you find somebody to uh, get to that point where you're, you know, like we have to depart with this guy. It's not working out. I mean, it's like, how do you find the right contractor? How do you find the right pe people to work with knowing what you want to do with this fund and uh, acquire companies? Well, there's two levels to that. One is kind of the GP level just for us as partners. Obviously 
the more aligned we are, the better, the smoother the companies can run. Um, and then, you know, contractors and employees, I think, are, are a little bit more straightforward in the sense that, you know, you do your best to hire the right person. And if you make a mistake, you know, you just communicate along the way about what your expectation is. And if that expectation is not met, then that person doesn't work out. I just think I've always tried to be as communicative as possible in those kinds of delicate, sometimes delicate situations. Yeah. Um, and and that's about it. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Right. Yeah, just they're just not into you. Yeah, it happens all the yeah. time. Or yeah. or they suck at their job. Like that happens too. <laughs> <laughs> so these other two, yeah, you bought without cash. Um, now I understand you're starting a fund, also, right? You have a thesis for that fund, or how, how's that going? So I I don't like to use the word thesis because I think that generally that's it's uh it's like a bunch of kind of fluffy bullshit that doesn't actually have any real meaning to anybody but <laughs> I, I will say that what we're trying to do right now is i don't have uh the ability to go out and raise a 10 million dollar fund which i think is is the point at which a fund starts to become realistic just with all the setup fees and all the shit that comes with a fund right like doing a million dollar fund is not you know you're losing money. Like you can't put food on the table with a million dollar fund. Yeah, it's a defeating purpose. It's just like almost a waste of time. It doesn't make yes. sense. So, so I would so much rather start to get um, really strong investors in on these one-off deals and build the network that way. And once we've done five, 10 of those, then I can come around and say, listen, we've done a bunch of these deals. We're doing a fund that has like, I, I wouldn't say a thesis, but I would probably describe it as picking a market segment. Um, and for example, we would go and buy anything for this particular fund that would be a developer tool, or we could do one for blockchain or, or you know, climate or all these other kinds of market segments um, and, and do it that way. But at the moment, we're just doing uh, deal by deal. We're just investing alongside yeah, I mean, of our investors. doesn't hurt to start something like a syndicate angel list where you just have a group of, you know, 100 investors you go to and say, hey. I, I'm looking. I we're looking for fifty thousand dollars. A little help to purchase this company. Yeah, yeah. So AngelList actually, I reached out to them because I mean we have effectively the same back office requirements as a fund, and AngelList won't let you uh, use their back office for buying companies. It has to be it has to be acquisitions. Um, I, it wasn't clear to me exactly why that was, but they said it was something legally on their side where they couldn't do. Uh, they couldn't do that for us, but yeah. Yeah. You're well, tell right. Me, tell me a little bit about uh, your outreach. I mean, there's, you know, very distinct parts of the business, you know, uh, searching for the business resource sourcing deals. And that's very challenging to find somebody that's, you know, software business and their motivated seller. How, how are you doing that? Two things. We have four partners myself included. So there's four of us total. That's like kind of a lot of firepower. If you come from the small startup world, like I do, four people is not, that's not that small, right? That's a lot no, of- uh, You quadrupled your efforts possibly. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we can spread it around. And then the pitch that I've been making, and I should probably keep this closer to the vest than I do, but when I approach somebody, I, I just say like, look, and this tends to be true, you probably haven't thought about selling. Um, and you're probably not ready to sell, but when you are, like, I'd love to just introduce myself and have a chat because this is our little startup. And, and that kind of um, 
leveling with another founder it says like look your your big idea was this little company right you've built it made it profitable you know we're a bunch of we're a bunch of guys similar to you and this is our big idea right but like we're just kind of a startup just like you and we really want to see this cool thing that you've built succeed um all of that happens to be true which is helpful but i think that that pitch and just leveling with them and not showing up like um in a suit right and like this isn't some big private equity firm right we're just like you know, I'm, I'm intentionally wearing like this sweatshirt, right? Like I show up just to look just like these guys. Cause I am just like these guys, right? Like I've had, I've been on the other side of the table before, and this is the kind of seller that, that I would want to have interacted with me. Right. Right. Are you with the intent of purchasing a controlling interest of the company or, cause I see that conversation happening goes, cause a lot of founders start businesses and goes, gosh, I got it to a million bucks. And I just can't figure out how to get to million five or the next level, but I still want to go on for the ride. Right. But I still want control. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, so one deal right now we're looking at, uh, the founders are kind of, uh, they have full-time jobs and they don't want to go full-time on this thing because I think, um, you know, whatever, that's not for everybody, right? Not everybody wants to go do the whole startup thing where you leave your job and maybe your pension or whatever. Um, and there are other people, like you just said, and we're looking at one deal like this now where the founder does want to stay on. Um, and so we haven't structured a deal like that yet. What we're thinking roughly is that we'll buy it outright and then we will give the founder a salary and then the ability to earn back some equity over time. And that, that equity will be uh, vested. So they have you know, significant upside if we can do what we say we can do by partnering together, but we'll be buying like 100% of the company at the beginning and then kind of dishing out um, equity like we would for any of our operators. Yeah. Interesting. And do your, when you bring a deal to the uh, four other, three other guys, is it, they each have like a percentage of say, like one can veto it, even though three say great thumbs up. Um, we, we, we don't or have you're still, It sounds like you're still trying to work that out. <laughs> no, I don't think we're still trying to work it out. I think that I, so like, technically speaking, I put this group together, but do I have any other rights that some other people in the group do not? Um, no. Uh, and, and so it hasn't come up where like three of us want to do a deal and one person does not, but there's a lot of like conventional stuff, particularly from the VC industry, actually around how like partners say yes or no to deals, right? It's like um, strong convictions weekly held is a really great phrase to think about, right? So you come in with really strong convictions. Um, and then if you get new data points that uh, uh, turn your opinion around, you just kind of, um, you just switch, you just switch your opinion. So I think for us right now, because it's so small, because we have so few deals, if we didn't have a hundred percent buy-in from everybody, that would be a bit of a red flag. Um, because we all do different functions, right? I'm an engineer. We have another engineer. We have a finance guy and we have an operations growth sales guy. So if we're on all four, not aligned on a particular deal, we're going to be weak in that particular area. Because again, these, these businesses, even at low seven figures, like, do you know how expensive a software engineer is in Los Angeles? Like we can't afford, you know what I mean? We can't afford to staff all these guys. Like we're actually doing a lot of the work so far which of course is not the ultimate objective, but that just is kind of what it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's no perfect deal that comes about. And, you know, if everybody says no, every time something comes up, you'll, you know, you're going to die of thirst. Yeah. And that's not what's happening. It's every, it's been, uh, it's been good, but we're still, we're still early. I think I, I'm eager to do 
five of these, 10 of these over the next year or so, um, and really start just getting some more reps in. And um, I think we'll know a lot more at the end of that. And I always just try and be transparent with anyone coming along for the ride with us that we're new and we're figuring a lot of this stuff out, but we will do it uh, while communicating really clearly to everyone involved. Is your goal to grow at say specific level three X, five X, sell it, or do you want a purchase a platform company and kind of build around to it to a get to a you know a much higher multiple? Yeah, that platform approach is a really cool idea. Um, I feel like that happens by accident, right? If you're opportunistically buying stuff and the big winner in your portfolio of 10 becomes like an anchor that you want to then go grow by acquisition. I think that's a really cool concept that really only comes about kind of organically. I think it's really hard to shop around and say, hi, I'm looking for not only like all the other deal terms, but like this is going to be the anchor for the fund for the next 10 years. I think that's a really difficult thing to predict um, and go out and hunt for. Um, so so it's a cool strategy. I don't I think that right now again we're just focused on being a little bit more opportunistic and um seeing what comes. Yeah. And when you guys, the four of you, you said you each have different disciplines. Do you say, I mean, if you go to a house, I'm gonna rehab this house, and he goes, Hey, I need the bath, the bathroom needs to be done, the kitchen needs to be done, and you know, that'll add X amount to it. Does if you don't have that, do you, if you, in a section in the business, do you say, would you go out and hire it or does the expertise need to be in house? Oh, we would definitely go out and hire it, but on the deal, on the diligence side, right. If, if Henry uh, who's running the financials says like, this is funky, we're going to have cash flow problems because of X, Y, Z, even though we might say the engineers might say this looks great. And the, our uh, growth guy, Danny might say, I have a bunch of ideas on how I could do this, right? That's, that's going to be a pass for us. Similarly, if they're excited, but the engineering sucks or the product sucks, or it's going to be a lot of work, then we'll pass on based on that. So um, the conviction side is, is colored by the discipline that we are focused on at the moment. And again, that's kind of why it's so important that all of us are aligned because if any one of those three engineering products or growth are misaligned, um, the engineering, I would say growth and maybe financials, that's, those are the three, uh, yeah. then we're going to have problems. Right. And, and so, uh, if all four of us are aligned on each of those fronts, then maybe, maybe we'll make fewer mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever considered purchasing a, a company that if you saw it come across your board, say, Hey, it's not profitable, but you saw a clear way to make it profitability. Would you add that into your deal flow sourcing? The way I've been thinking about doing. Um, and then really- let, me, let, me, uh, let me interrupt you because, because any, a lot of the businesses between zero and $1 million just haven't totally figured out their market fit yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a possibility. And I'm not saying you have to plug it into something, a bigger channel. I mean, just, well, geez, they're, maybe the people weren't seeing the opportunity. We can make it profitable real quick. We would go first as GPs with our own cash before we brought outside investors in for an experiment that we haven't done before. I am running this relatively conservatively. Could I go try and really blow out a fund at five, $10 million right now? I think maybe I could maybe do that, but I would so much rather just take it easy, do five of these, be really conservative, really just, you know, I, I love pitching investors, to be honest. I don't know why, but 
but it's so much easier when you can just post really great numbers. The conversation is just so much better, right? Like right now I would have to go out and like, there's a lot of caveats like, okay, we've done three and the numbers are great, but the numbers are small. It was pure cash. We're kind of like cash flows. We're kind of cash poor relative, you know, most of the time it's going to be so much easier in a year or so when we've done like five low seven figure deals, we're still posting great numbers. That's all the slide deck is needs to be is that one page. The rest of it is just context and, you know, them getting to know me a little bit more, right? Or, yeah. or us as partners. Yeah. Do you have a pretty good sense? You know, if you're rehabbing a house, you say, oh, this is going to take $300,000 to get to the market comps. Um, and we can buy it. If we can buy it for $100,000, put $300,000 in, we'll sell it at $600,000. You have a pretty good sense that you could, take a look at a company, know what it's actually worth, the time that you need to put into it and the resources you need to put into it to get to that? Yes, to all of that, except for the sale price, because I still think this this market where we sit is figuring out uh, how to value these things. And frankly, in in some cases, I, I worry about who's above us. So in an ideal world, and we'll get there eventually, we buy below the current private equity infrastructure and we sell into it, right? So we, we buy these things lower, we put a team in place, right? We grow it up to where it's it's a deal size that a private equity group could actually look at, right? Because it's going to be, I mean, it would be too expensive for them to do like a million dollar deal or a $5 million dollar for some of these big companies, a hundred million dollar deal is too small. To move the needle. Annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if we can take, if we can buy below that existing infrastructure and sell into it, then that's going to be our huge alpha because we're going to get like multiple expansion, all that kind of good stuff. So I don't know, I don't know when we're going to get there. I think it's going to be uh, as we kind of move up stack, so to speak, and, and start buying slightly bigger companies. Um, but we do have a pretty good sense so far of, of what's missing especially in the context of, and this is all we're focused on really like B2B SaaS, B2B software companies, those look, smell and feel and taste relatively the same. And so doing this for 10 years, right? You just kind of pattern match and say, well, oh, the pricing sucks. This is the weirdest pricing I've ever seen. No wonder people aren't upgrading their packages. We just need to do these like, you know, tweak these three little things here and yes. do, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah like leave- ratio or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, we bought one and the price is one of them. The lowest package was like $7.90. And I'm like, what the hell is $7.90? Like, is this milk? Like, dude, dude, like, there's no reason we can't just triple this. And we then we did. And like the product's worth that. It's it's that good. And lo and behold, like, you know, we've, we've tripled revenue. Yeah. Uh, who do you look at for kind of a model that's going for? I mean, I like to talk uh, about Tiny Capital and uh, uh, what's his name, Wilkinson over there. He's got a great little model. Oh, yeah. Purchasing, uh, you know, a little bit higher than yours, I think, but he had a lot more capital to work with. Well, yeah. I, I mean, Andrew Wilkinson's the man. I, I haven't met him yet, but I, I would I would love to at some point. Um, and yeah. I talked to him in a podcast, but he's on uh, sabbatical right now. Oh, is he? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's tiny capital. And then above that, you know, I know Angie looks up to like Charlie Munger a lot too. And I I, I read a lot about his his thoughts. And um, yeah, I mean, tiny is like, I think they're close to, or if not surpassed a billion in like assets under management, so to speak. No yeah, way, really? That's amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He was, he was just doing it with his own cash. So, I mean, 
even my service business. So Andrew started with a service business, right? He was doing design that kicked off excess cash flow that he then used to purchase businesses. Um, I have a service business, but like, I don't know how the guy got so much cash out of these little service businesses, man. Cause it's just like, there's a little bit extra going around, but not, not much. Um, yeah. so, I, you know, I but, think, uh, if I, the story was correct, his, some piece of, uh, some technology he wrote or did for people was purchased and he had some royalties from it. I correct me for, you know, I might be wrong about that, but that seems like his timeline there that happened all of a sudden he started buying these, you know, five to $15 million SaaS business. Now he's got what, 10, 20 of them. Yeah. He's got a lot. Um, yeah. I think it is closer to 20 and some of them are like sizable, like public company size. Yeah. I, I like uh, Charlie Munger. Have you ever read, uh, read his book on the uh, Mungerisms? I mean, yes. Yeah. Charlie's an almanac. Yeah. He's a, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to hear somebody so smart talking about uh, avoiding mistakes. That was the kind of big, uh, the big insight I took from it. Here's a guy who's really, really smart. And all he talks about is not making mistakes, right? That is going to be what's what that's going to be the secret to his success is not making mistakes. Yeah. What does he call it? He says like, Hey, if I wanted to do this, uh, what's the opposite I would do to make sure it didn't happen. Right. Yeah. You figure yeah. out all those things and go, well, just do, don't do these. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a crass guy. I love it. It's great. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's next for you? Um, well, first of all, I have to admit, I, I love your transparency on your, the Twitter and the blog stuff. I mean, that has to help you with deal flow and people saying, great. I, I like what this guy's doing. I feel comfortable. I'd be interested in selling the business or partnering the business because there's a lot of people. I'm in a mastermind and there's a thousand other people around the world and they want to get involved in deal flow, but a lot of them don't know how to source it. So that's a really big challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, it may, it might look a lot sexier than it is, but like I'm hustling people on Twitter all the time, right? Like it's not, this isn't magic. It's not, it's not rocket science. I'm literally seeing tweets, reaching out to people immediately and just saying like, Hey, you know, like the pitch that I went through, Hey, you know, you probably haven't thought about selling. Maybe it's not ready, but I'd love to hop on a call and just introduce myself for when the time's right. That's it. And I just, you know, and sometimes six months later, people reach out and say, here's my deal. I'm thinking about selling it. Yeah. Um, and they go to us first. The transparency came first though. That was, that was, uh, um, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for a little bit now and I've had some uh, like character building moments. Right. And I just am a big fan of, uh, just being honest. It's just so much fucking easier. And, uh, you know, this business is a full contact sport. People are going to get, you know, hurt and beat up and stuff, but the least you can do is just be, just be straightforward. Yeah. Um, you, uh, feel comfortable talking about a couple of those character building moments. I mean, the ones that really stand out and say, gosh, darn it. I, you know, that's a lesson to live with me for the rest of my life. Uh, no, I can't, I can't. There are, there <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all active stuff. So I, it's, yeah. it's literally still, it's still going on. Uh, nothing that I'm directly involved in yet, but like it is, I, I can't, I can't chat about it. How the ego trips us up. Yeah. And it would also just really damage uh, some people. And I just said, no, 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 yeah, no to keep that uh, close to your chest. That's a, a, interesting. So, but yeah, I've gotten, I've gotten kicked in the teeth for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's the point is like how uh, trusting 
Have you ever had any issue with trusting the numbers or the financials with some of the people that you purchase companies from? The reason I brought that up, but if you follow Warren Buffett and Charles Munger, I mean, when they first started out, all the companies that buy now are mostly public. But when they first started purchasing companies or private, they, hey, just send me your financials. You've seen the letter. Send me your financials. And, uh, and they don't even have a conversation on the phone. He'll look over the financials and they'll make an offer in uh, 72 hours. Yeah. And trust them based upon knowing the industry so well and the numbers that correlate to that industry saying, we know what a good valuation is on this. Well, by the time they were doing that, there was a lot of trusts on their side, right? And so it was him extending kind of the, the golden branch first. But if that trust was betrayed, I don't think that that would be, um, I, I don't think that that would have been taken to too kindly, right? Like that would have been a career ending move for whoever lied to Warren Buffett yeah. about one of those emails. I think it was a lot of trust. Warren was going first. Charlie was going first, which is great. Um, but there was teeth behind that, right? Like they had some serious firepower to, to back that up with, right? If somebody was not truthful. Also too, I mean, that's the kind of shit that lands you in jail. It's just so easy to prove. Yeah, to the quality airing stuff. Um, yeah, but for us, to be honest with you, I don't trust the numbers as much for the stuff that we are doing, but it's not because of, of trust issues between humans. It's more so just like people make mistakes and like, honestly, finance is, finance is hard. Right. Like it's actually pretty annoying to get really solid books and like, oh, are you doing it on a cruel basis? Or like, you know, we bought a company from the Netherlands. Like, how the hell do they do shit there? You know what I mean? Like, what are these? Yeah, yeah. How do these numbers line up? But uh, for what we do, most of most of the time, the payment processor has like the source of truth. Right. Like real credit cards hitting and real dollars hitting real bank accounts. Um, and so we always get access to that. And that's kind of where we base our source of truth on. It's not like a spreadsheet that somebody just sends to us. Yeah. And how do you check uh, for expenses? I mean, from the bank statements? Uh... Yeah. 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 But but again, um, it, it, it for some of these really small deals, like it doesn't um, matter too much in the sense that like we're basing this on, on SDE. And so if they want to put a bunch of expenses in there, like that's going to come out in our offer, right? We're only going to pay on the, on the actual, you know, SDE and not, uh, and not, you know, after expenses and stuff like that. So, so we're, you know, if they want to fight to go add those back in, then they're going to have to show it to us and prove to us like that uh, those wouldn't be there in, in the future, but it hasn't been that big of a deal so far. Yeah. Have you figured out the numbers on the top of the funnel where you say, Hey, we need to be talking to this many people. We need to have this many LOIs in place. We, and then we need to have this many to, to make this happen. No, uh, it's just not big enough yet. I mean, I don't know that you would ever get there. Right. I mean, imagine doing a couple hundred million dollar deals a year. What do you need a process for? Right. Like you're sourcing a shit ton. There's not that many. Well, there's there. not that many hundred million dollar companies. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like we're going out to a hundred companies at the moment with this message. And, um, you know, there's just not that, I don't think at any given time, there's that many quality businesses we would, we would buy. Yeah. And just curious, do you guys use the same attorneys and tax people all the time and due diligence people or? So we, I've been kind of a stickler on diligence. I don't, I can see why some people outsource it. We are not outsourcing it at the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, same lawyer, same accountants, bookkeepers. That's yeah. cool. Cool. Well, man, I, 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 Andrew, I wish you the best of luck at this, man. I love what you're doing here. 
Thanks so I much. Think you, I think you'll do well because the base, you know, following Charles Munger, these guys, Tiny Capital, Andrew, I mean, th those are good, great role models. Yeah, they are. They are. Got to get them on the board. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, I got a pretty uh, positive response from Andrew said, Hey, I'd love to do it, but I'm on sabbatical. Let's check back when I come back in. So I'd love to get him on my podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's the, what, what do they call him? The Oracle of, of Vancouver. So yeah. So. Yeah. Just that's amazing. And uh, do these companies are you, do you have an incorporation and uh, all these companies under it, uh, a holding company, like an LLC? Yeah, so we just have a GP that's an LLC, and then each of the companies is in a manager-managed LLC. It's like a super, super, it's like a poor man's fund. It's yeah, like a straightforward that's, thing. That's typical, very typical. That's great. Yeah. Andrew, man, I want to thank you for being in the uh, Top uh, Entrepreneurs uh, Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate All right. it. All right, take care. Cheers. Bye.